horrible with a handheld because I end up getting a little excited and it goes all over the place. Anyway, hey everybody, how are we doing tonight? It's flipping cold out there, isn't it? Right. Uh, everybody used to tell me about, oh, we haven't really had an Invercargill winter yet. I think I finally experienced one and it's not that much fun. I'm going to put it out there. Um, five frosts in a row before winter even hits, so yeah, okay. Oh, did you hear the, the, the Kiwis lost this morning? Did you hear? Thumped by England. England. <laughs> no, yeah, tell us how you really feel, mate. <laughs> At least you. All right, let's, let's move on from sporting. Hey, uh, we're week three of Wintering Well. Um, uh, and um, I, f- I think it was, it was praise last week, and this week we're dealing with uh, worship. Um, and I really, really quite like this one, so um, I'm going to warn you, I'll get a little bit excited at certain points, but um, yeah, just bear with. Hey, um, location uh, or proximity is really important for a lot of things in life, uh, in general. Um, I think of, there's this, uh, there's this chair in my lounge that, uh, that, that sort of it manages to, to, to cut the glare off the television set, you know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's close enough to the fire to keep you warm during winter. There's no glare off the television, uh, and it's pretty close to the fridge as well. Location is important for when you're watching television that you don't want to miss. Uh, or perhaps, perhaps you're, you're a student at school. Generally speaking, the best chairs are at the back of the auditorium, isn't it? That's the one. You can read a book at the back there or play on your iPad. Or whatever, and, and generally at the back towards the door, so that as soon as the bell rings, you gap it out the door. Am I right? Pretty right, yeah. I remember that's good, yeah. Um, or if you're buying a house, perhaps, or renting a house, what you're looking at is if you've got kids, you want a good school district, don't you? You want, you want uh, proximity to uh, a good school district or a good school, or, or, or maybe you, you, you want to be able to walk to the shops. I mean, nobody ever does that, but it's nice if you could do it, couldn't you? Um, if you wanted to, maybe on that one day where you felt like healthy and stuff. Uh, but it's good to know that if you wanted to, you could walk to a shop just around the corner. Hey, um... The thing about, uh, and, and this, I missed my segue here, uh, it's, the same, it's the same for Orthodox Jewish worship. Um, uh, and and uh, for centuries, the Jews uh, saw the temple in Jerusalem as the central place of worship. Uh, proximity was everything. Um, uh, and so there was only one place for you to worship God, uh, and it was um, at the temple in Jerusalem. Am, am I working? No. It's a lot. Okay. Um, and for centuries, this, this, the, 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 the temple plays the central role in the worship of, of Israel. Uh, six ceremonies a year, every single adult male in the whole of uh, Israel had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. A city that maybe held maybe 150,000 people suddenly swells to over a million people. Uh, the temple is at the center of the celebration. Choirs are singing in the courtyards. You've got uh, beggars begging. You've got, you've got the smells that are coming off the sacrifices that are made within the temple grounds. You've got this whole big thing happening. It's exciting. It's a, it's a place to be. And, and you might be aware that the temple's destroyed around 70 AD by the Romans, uh, and it's never rebuilt. But, but still today, there's a place called the Wailing Wall, which is behind me over there. It's the last remaining wall of the temple, uh, and still remains as one of the most holy places in all of Orthodox Jewish worship. Uh, people literally spend uh, hours uh, at this wall, and they push little pieces of paper with their prayers into the wall. You may have heard of that. 
Um, it's still the holiest site in the Jewish faith uh, to this day. It's really hard for me to underline for you quite how important the temple was in terms of uh, Israel's worship, or Israel's understanding of worship. Uh, the temple is a series of, of seven walled compounds. If you go to the next slide, you'll see that. Um, and at the center of this uh, lay the Holy of Holies. Uh, this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested, and you might remember your Bible stories for the Ark of the Covenant that keeps getting stolen and replaced and, and all of those things. Uh, this is a wooden box that is inlaid with intricate gold uh, fillet. Oh, oh, I don't know whether I got that right. Um, but on the top of it, there, is, um, there are two uh, cast angels with their wings um, uh, in, in the shape of a seat. Uh, and it literally represents the seat of God. Uh, it is the, the place, the throne of God. Uh, and it's, it lies at the heart of Jewish worship, right in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God amongst his people. Um, and so this was the most uh, important uh, aspect of, of, of Jewish worship. Um, the only place to worship God was at the temple. You could gather at a synagogue to read scripture and to do, do, do teaching, but to worship God, to truly worship God, you had to go to the temple. Uh, you had to go there. And this is still very much true in the first century when we're going to read in Romans. Uh, Jesus has alluded to um, it several times, the importance of the temple. Uh, and and, and uh, he's going to allude to the fact that this is going to change, that something is going to change about the way Israel worships uh, God. Uh, and, and probably the most famous one of those particular uh, ways in which he alludes to it is in John chapter 4. Um, as you may be aware, Jesus uh, goes off, heads off, uh, he's going back to Jerusalem, but takes a detour through Samaria. Um, and uh, while he's waiting for his disciples uh, to come back from running errands, they're going to go fetch a dinner and all those things, uh, he, he intentionally starts a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Now, uh, we know that that's not... It's a social faux pas. You don't talk to women at all, but you don't talk particularly to Samaritan women uh, because, well, Samaritans and Jews have really bad blood. Although they're from the same origins, uh, they, they were left behind in the Babylonian exile, and so they were seen as traitors and sellouts uh, in terms of, uh, and the, and the Jews were seen as, as the one true people that had kind of stuck to their guns. And so Jesus starts this conversation with this woman, and it's apparent right from the start that there are people from very different faith traditions. They might have started out the same, but they're very different now. And so she says to him, we're from different places, we're from different ancestors, and my ancestors told me to worship God on this mountain. Your ancestors told you to worship God in Jerusalem at the temple, and Jesus makes this reply, which is really, really cool, and I'm going to paraphrase, not that one. Jesus says, lady, there's a time coming when that argument that you're making right now is going to be so silly. I'm going to change everything. What I'm going to do on the cross is going to change the very nature of how uh, you worship, how, how Jew, Jewish people worship. You're not going to need the temple anymore. True worshippers are going to worship me in spirit and in truth. Hey, we're going to camp out in Romans chapter 12, uh, 1 and 2. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, you can turn to that now. But what I'd like to do is, is to kind of set the scene for Romans. Because for most of us that have been in church for a little while, Romans is a, is a seriously intimidating uh, book. Um, 
And, and what I want you to understand is that at its, at its fundamental, Romans is still just a letter to uh, a specific uh, group of people uh, with the same issues, the same difficulties that all of us as Christians face. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and although it is a deep and very theological book, at its heart remains a, a response um, to, uh, to what God is doing amongst the Roman people. One thing you need to know as we approach Romans is very simply this, is Christianity um, in, in the first century is still predominantly uh, uh, predominated by Jews. There's still a large Jewish contingent um, that have been converted uh, to Christianity. And so for most of uh, the first century world, they see uh, Christianity as simply as a subset of Judaism. Christian churches, by and large, sprang out of synagogues. So when Paul went on his missionary journeys, you almost uh, always see he starts out at the synagogue. Uh, that's where most of his converts came from. Uh, until, unfortunately, they got kicked out. Because yeah, uh, So Christianity is spread largely by Jews moving from place to place to place. Gentiles joining the church is still a reasonable, relative um, novelty. And in Rome, the Jews, uh, by and large, were the backbone of this very, very young church. Uh, a church that probably didn't look anything like the church that we're sitting in right now. Um, or, or maybe what you might think should, should look like. Uh, what we understand is that the, the church in Rome predominantly was a loose collection of house churches. Um, but we also know that they weren't entirely insignificant in number. Around 49 AD, uh, a Roman scribe notes that the Jews are evicted from Rome because they keep rioting in the name of Christus. Uh, they believe that's a misspelling of the word Christus or, or Christ. And because Roman, in Rome, peace in Roman cities is super important because it means it's, it's God's blessing upon them, they literally boot all of the, 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 the Jewish uh, Christians and Jews out of Rome. And because human rights is not really a thing uh, back in those days, they don't really spend a lot of time trying to differentiate between Jews and Jewish Christians, and so everybody gets kicked out. Um, and so now we know that the, the, the time span of this eviction is not a long period of time, uh, likely just around five years, but it's enough to kind of disrupt this really fledgling small group of house churches. Uh, Jews are the backbone of that church uh, at the time. And so five years passes, Emperor Cassius dies, uh, his edict uh, becomes null and void, and so slowly but surely you start to see these Jews filtering back into the church in Rome. But what they discover on their return uh, is that the Gentiles have had, had kind of get on with it while they've been away. Um, suddenly they're not quite as important to the church in Rome as what they used to be. Um, so uh, there, there's a new Sunday school superintendent, and, and the flower rosters are inc incredibly full now all of a sudden. And, and you know how mean those ladies in the flower rosters can be, really be, huh? Um, but the reality is, is that the church has had to move on because it's, it's, if it was going to survive, people had to step up, and they did. And so understandably what this does is it creates this sort of sense of tension within the local church. Uh, this is a church trying to figure out who it's trying to be. Um, uh, with essentially two competing cultures. Um, and so when Paul writes this verse we're going to look at in, in Romans 12.1, he's talking to a group of people that are trying to work out what it means to be the church of Christ, what it means to be a worshipping congregation. 
So Romans 12 verse 1 starts like, like, like this. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. And wherever there's a therefore in Scripture, there's a backstory. There's always an origin story to why the person writes therefore, particularly when it comes to Paul. So it either refers to something he said before, um, or it refers to some sort of theological understanding. And in this case, it's no different. So in view of God's mercy, Paul writes, God's mercy is a person. God's mercy is not a thing, it's a person. Uh, And he's saying, in view of Jesus Christ, in view of all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, in view of the person in whose image you have been made, who shaped the very nature of who you are, in view of the person who gives you purpose in terms of your faith, who gives you the purpose to become like the one you have been created, who through the Old Testament reveals himself to Israel and therefore gives us the language to begin to understand what's about to happen next, who reveals himself fully in person and nature and character in the person of Jesus Christ, who in his body carries our human frailties and, in his, and, and, and uh, embodies our nature and our character, who through his lived existence begins to redeem our humanity because of that who goes to death on the cross, destroying our sinfulness, and through his resurrection, invites us to experience life in all of its fullness, who ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God, the Father interceding on our behalf, praying on our behalf. In view of this, when everything around you says, try harder, do better, do something, Christ says, done, finished, forgiven, forgotten. In view of this overwhelming, overpowering, all-consuming, relentless love of God in Jesus Christ, in light of this simple fact, this big, huge, all-encompassing idea, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, because this is your true and proper act of worship. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul's talking to Jewish Christians right here, and that's largely because he's talking in sacrificial language. And there's no understanding that Gentiles would ever have about sacrifices because it's not part of their their DNA. It's not part of their history. And so he's writing to these Jewish Christians, trying to remind them about the fact, about what he said uh, would happen before. And for centuries, this temple has been the place of worship for Jews, the only place where Jews could worship God, the one location where God was to be found in all of the world. And maybe it seems like these Jewish converts had taken some of that sentiment into the local church with them. Church was so, so very important that they were prepared to make it a really, really uncomfortable place uh, for everyone else because this was the most important thing to them. Paul uses the word sacrifice here to describe what he means by worship. And in the context of the, the, of the temple, this, is, uh, this means that you purchase a, a, an unblemished animal. It would cost you an absolute fortune, largely because the people, the, the people selling it to you would try and rip you off. But it costs you something. It's costly. It's measurable. It's undeniable. You bring your sacrifice to the temple and you burn it. And Paul invites us to see our worship not as, not as a burnt offering, but as our whole lives, as a living sacrifice, not a dead one, a living one. And so when they're displaced by the Gentile Christians, the, this obviously created some significant anxiety within the church. Um, 
because this was the only place for them. This was the only place for them to worship. And Paul writes to the church in Rome to tell them again, worship is not about proximity. This is not about a place. Um, This is not about a building. Jesus changed all of that. Worship has nothing to do with where you are and everything to do with Jesus Christ and the purpose that he wrought through our lives. Now, I've got to be careful here because I want to invite the worship group up a little later and I'm kind of hoping they're not going to strike for me. Um, But I want to address um, perhaps one of the more significant parts of our culture, particularly around what it means to worship. Worship is not about words necessarily that are sung or the place that we sing them in. Worship is a life song, a life lived in response to the glorious, overwhelming love of God and mercy shown in and through Christ Jesus. Worship is the very air that we breathe as Christians, the foundation of our lives, fundamentally itself, foundation of our lives lived as a, as a worthy, as, that are worthy of the sacrifice that Christ has made on the cross, of choices made in response to the glorious mercy of found, found in Christ. I think that our Christian culture has made worship into this thing that we do on Sunday, of words sung to very, very beautiful music, of incredible voices raised to God, and I, and I think of things like Hillsong and Planet Shakers and Bethel music, and, and is that worship? Yes, it is worship. Absolutely. It's a response to an almighty, loving God. But that's not all there is. It can't be. To relegate worship to simply what we do here on a Sunday morning or a Sunday uh, evening is to make it less than what it is. Worship is so much more than just singing. And maybe, maybe we've just slipped into the habits of some of our, our Jewish uh, Christian converts to see worship as all about proximity, a place where you come, a place where you sing words. Maybe we've just made it into, into, into a thing what we do in church. Um, but I've got to say that if that's the high point of our worship to God in any given week, is that enough? Then I think we need to think bigger than that. So what is worship then? Um, John Piper writes this, and I think this is absolutely fabulous. Um, what is worship? It's this inner essence of worship to know God truly, and then to respond from the heart that that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And in that deep and restful place, the restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows the demonstrable acts of praise from the lips uh, and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of God. If worship is something that we only do on a Sunday, I want to encourage you to, 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 I want you to know uh, that worship is so much more uh, than that. It's the very air that we breathe as Christians, as lives lived uh, in in glorious reflection on the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. And to see it simply as words sung is to deny the fullness of what it means to be a true worshiper of God. 
Let's pray. Father, as we come before you tonight, I pray that you would give us a real sense of what it means to be a worshipper of God, Father God. That to sing our praise to you is a a great and glorious reflection of who you are, Father God, uh, and the right way um, to, to worship you, Father God. But to see our lives, the very essence of who we are, as our worship to you is fundamental to who we are as Christians, Father God. So I pray, Father, that you would challenge us in our day-to-day lives to find places uh, where we worship you, Father God, in the way in which we live and act and breathe and move, Father. I pray that you would, that we would, we would reflect your glory and the great mercy that we find in you, Father God, in the way in which we live amongst our families, our friends, the places that you put us into our communities, Father God. I pray that you give us a bigger heart for the worship of you, Father God. I pray this in your mighty and your powerful name. Amen. Hey, we're going to go into a bit of a time of, uh, of, of communion now. And um, I, want, I want you to come to the communion time. I invite you to come forward um, t- tonight. I want you to come to the communion table uh, because it's a, it's a profound reminder of the mercies of God in what Jesus has done for us. Um, and it gives us a response, a, a way to respond um, um, in worship to God. Tonight I want you to come and, and, and participate in communion uh, because once again you choose to live a life worthy of the cross. It's a reminder that, that worship is not about a place. It's not about a right place, a right church, a right time. Or even about feeling like you're worthy of what God has done for you. Because Jesus took care of that. Right here we have the love of God in Christ Jesus laid bare for us. An invitation to participate in that. It's, an, it's a reminder that, that we get to participate in God's life. Uh, and this table is again an invitation for you to do that, to know peace with God and to come and know his mercy, his grace and his love uh, in what he, uh, in in Christ Jesus. So tonight as you come, I pray that you would commit your lives to being um, worshipful lives, that this would be your life song, that it wouldn't be uh, a time and a place, but it would be who you are, the nature and ground of your being is to worship God with the way you live and act um, in the places that God has called you to. So tonight he invites you to come again and remember the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. To know that he loves you, that you don't have to try any harder because Jesus says done. To come tonight and worship God. Father, we thank you so much for what you, you do for us, Father God, in Christ Jesus. Please, Father God, remind us again of your great mercies, Father God, as we participate in this, this service, Father God, as we, as we drink uh, from the cup, as we uh, eat the bread, Father God. I pray that once again you would remind us of the great mercies that we find in Christ Jesus and that constant invitation to participate in that. 
So we're going to play some music, and then we're going to invite you to come uh, and participate uh, in the communion. Um, and then just um, as you're ready, um, um, uh, feel free to take it. And then when the song sort of ends, we're going to invite the worship uh, group to come up again, and we're going to respond uh, in worship.